0: This is Nate Hansen and Tim Ritter. We are almost heretical. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. Hi, friends, Nate here, and I'm solo today because Tim is taking a little break from the show. You can find out more about that on the last episode we did, episode 93. I'm so excited today to be joined by Dr. Kristen Dumais. She's a professor of history and gender studies at Calvin University. She holds a PhD from the University of Notre Dame, and her research focuses on the intersection of gender, religion, and politics. In her most recent book, and you have to check this out, especially if you grew up in evangelicalism, it's called Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and fractured a nation. And good luck getting a copy. It's it's flying off the shelves everywhere because of the times that we're living in. So I'm super excited to get to talk to her. And what I hope this book and this interview does is makes you feel less alone and less crazy. Those are the two words that we hear the most from you our listeners, and that's why I do this show is so that you feel less of that. So you feel like there are people out there that are on this journey with you and so I hope a book like this that maybe accurately tells some of the experience that you had and that you've gone through and shining that light, I guess, on some of these things that were that were wrong. Um, I hope that is helpful to you. And so without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Kristen Dumain. So excited to be talking with you, Kristen. And this book is just... I I literally had a hard time getting a copy of it because everyone is trying to get a copy of it right now um, because of these times that we're living in. It's it's pretty crazy and pretty timely, I think. Um, Yeah, super curious. You write this book about evangelicalism and a bit into fundamentalism. And I guess I'm curious, did you... Grow up in that. Uh, what what came what what led you to I guess to doing this research and and studying this topic in particular?
1: Yeah, I didn't really grow up inside of evangelicalism. Not uh, not as far as I knew. I grew up in a conservative Christian home community in Northwest Iowa, uh, but it was uh, a. Dutch ethnic community. So I grew up in the Christian Reformed Church. My mom was an immigrant from the Netherlands. And when I was growing up, uh, you know, my religious community it really defined itself over against American evangelicalism, over against American Christianity. You know, we were distinctively Reformed, Dutch Reformed. And so I certainly didn't consider myself an evangelical. Uh, That said, (laughs) looking back, I can see how uh, I was still influenced by American evangelicalism. So, you know, we listened to Christian radio, Mm -hmm. uh, Christian music. Uh, We had one bookstore in my hometown and it was a christian bookstore and so you needed a birthday present you received a birthday present right it was it was purchased at the christian bookstore and so i was actually uh immersed in the the popular culture of evangelicalism even though i didn't uh really identify as an evangelical and i think that awareness uh is is something that that kind of frames the book frames the way i understand evangelicalism more broadly that that it is a consumer culture and uh, that is this popular culture of evangelicalism that really does shape the values of 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 many white evangelicals today,
0: Yeah, yeah. And I guess that's sort of even through reading the book, which I just I, I loved, I guess the question is like it's still hard to to define. And that's sort of the point, I guess what you're saying in the book too, especially early on, is like it's kind of a hard term to define. How have you come to to define? evangelicalism or just that term evangelical. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And has it changed, I guess? Have you seen it? Do you think it's changed over the course of history over the last 60, 70 years?
1: Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, it's changed over the course of the last three, 400 years. It's uh, the, the term is always is always morphing. Uh, and so one of the things that I'm doing in this book is actually pushing back against some other historians who are trying to hold up a kind of essential definition of evangelical, one that that is valid across time and space. And uh, for me, that that um, doesn't make a whole lot of sense, and uh, and it certainly is not very useful for us to understand what we know as white evangelicalism today, and for the last half century or so. Um, so, you know, these historians or evangelicals themselves, evangelical leaders, will will try to define or will define evangelicalism as a, a theology, mm. as a um, a set of uh, theological beliefs. And uh, so things like the centrality of the cross, crucicentrism, the um, authority of the scriptures, and uh, conversionism, being born again, and then activism and acting out of these 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 uh, impulses, mm-hmm. these beliefs yeah. and um, and I mean that's fine up to a certain extent. But it, uh, it ignores a lot of, of history, really, it ignores how, how evangelicalism is also a historical movement, a cultural movement. And when we uh, understand it in this way, then we have to see um, that uh, it's, it's not simply theology. In fact, many evangelicals today are not very theologically literate. Uh, and if you define evangelicalism theologically, you can put a lot of people into that bucket. So most Black Protestants would count as evangelicals. Most uh, global Christians would count as evangelicals, which is fine if, if you're you know kind of drawing the, the boundaries that way for various purposes. But to really understand white evangelicalism in American history, I think we have to understand it as a, as a historical and cultural movement. And so I ended up kind of backing into this understanding understanding of evangelicalism as a consumer culture,
2: Mm.
1: uh, as a, a series of networks and alliances. And, um, and when I understand it this way, then um, what we're looking at the last half century starts to really come into focus. It is predominantly a white religious movement, and it is a movement that is not always top down and not always theologically driven, but culturally uh, driven. Uh, cultural identity is at the heart, and it's it's really kind of uh, sustained, fostered and sustained through this massive evangelical popular culture.
0: Hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's what like stood out so much in the book. Okay, I gotta add, this is like one of the first pages in and I hear, I've seen so much on Twitter just about these these stats and I, I just wanna hear more. I wanna hear how this makes you feel and where, and where this like, um, if this like was a big part of kind of like getting into some of this research or this study, but yeah. okay, so you say, More than any other, I'm not going to quote the whole thing, but more than any other religious demographic in America, white evangelical Protestants support preemptive war, condone the use of torture, favor the death penalty. Uh, Let's see, they're more likely than members of other faiths to own a gun. Um, more opposed to immigration reform have more negative views on immigrants than any other religious demographic two-thirds support the border wall let's see 68 percent of white evangelical protestants more than any other demographic do not think the united states has a responsibility to accept refugees which is shocking to me Um, more than half of white evangelical protestants think a majority non-white u.s population would be a negative development Um, They're more likely to refuse to see Islam as part of mainstream American society. Um, Let's see, white evangelicals believe that Christians in America face more discrimination than Muslims. Let's see, white evangelicals are significantly more authoritarian than other religious groups, and they express confidence in their religious leaders at a much higher rate than do members of other faiths. And yeah, something we talk about on this show a lot is kind of going back up the stream, I guess, like looking at where these, these are the beliefs, these are the practices, I guess, but then you go back up the stream and say, where is this coming from, I guess? And and we're always looking at like theology. I know you've said it's, you know, it's not primarily theology. It's more of a cultural thing, but just wondering if you have any insight into maybe where, what does this mean? Like up upwards of the stream a bit, where do you think these ideas are, are coming from? I guess.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think what what's striking about many of those statistics is that, you know, when evangelicals self-identify, uh, first and foremost, as Bible-believing Christians, yep. right? And when you read that list, you can see like a lot of these things are really going against some pretty direct teachings of the scriptures.
2: Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. It works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. <laughs> um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> Yeah.
1: and uh and and so that's that's just a really uh you know important point to make and um, and so yeah where does it come from then so if it's not from the plain reading of the scriptures, Uh, where do these, uh, where do these beliefs come from? Now, full disclosure, that section and uh, that portion of the introduction of Jesus and John Wayne was initially my conclusion. Hmm. So I felt like I had earned the right. So I traced the history to get to that point. And then that was the, you know, boom kind of takeaway. Here's where we see it all, you know, uh, really play out in, in contemporary issues, this long history that I traced. And then uh, in the, the, uh, editorial phase, my editor said, okay, this is great stuff. I want you to move it all right up into the introduction and find something else to do for your conclusion.
2: Wow! And so
1: that was like really jarring for me because I thought, you know, these are some shocking statistics and it's pretty harsh reality. And if I can bring my readers to that point, you know, that's one thing then they're with me. They've seen, I've proven this. And instead I just put it all right up front, front loaded it. Um, And so it's a very jarring opening of the book. And then what I do is I I trace that And so I show how, uh, you know, particularly in the Cold War era, that evangelicals, come to really link up their understanding of Orthodox Christianity with Cold War militarism, with this us versus them mentality, and this is linked with uh, Christian nationalism, uh, the idea that America is a Christian nation and needs to be defended as such, and all of this is also linked together with gender traditionalism, as they'll call it, or uh, very distinct gender roles um, between men and women, and for men, what that looks like is um, God filled men with testosterone. That they can be masculine protectors, protectors of faith, family, and nation. And again, in this Cold War context, that can involve a military defense. It must involve a military defense, um, and and then it, it can be extrapolated into the culture wars and so on. So that's really where this starts, and and the rest of the book really traces this um, this militant faith that's very much in in us versus them. Use violence to achieve order when necessary for the good of. Christianity.
0: Yeah, it's just it's so crazy to me that essentially what you're saying is it it didn't it didn't start with the Bible, really. It didn't start with theology.
1: Right, right. Is
0: that is that surprising (laughs) to you? I don't know. It is to me.
1: Yeah, you know, and it's not that there's no theology or that you won't find any bible passages, but uh you know, the scriptures are are really read through these uh cultural and political lenses. And that's why I you know, make the point later in the book that uh, let's let's take the issue of immigration of you know, welcoming the stranger or uh you know, uh, refugees and 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 you know you can you can open the bible together and say but look look at all these passages yeah. look at it's right in front of us and yeah. i mean we know that those those conversations go nowhere uh that we are all of us approaching the scriptures through um, our cultural lenses through our pre-existing loyalties now ideally as Christians we like to claim that we'll are our, our you know cultural loyalties will be refined by our faith and that the scripture will challenge our beliefs and and that we will you know align ourselves more fully with the word of God uh, but in reality I think that oftentimes our 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 loyalties, um predispose us to certain passages and cer- certain interpretations. Now mm-hmm. some traditions are more open about that. Um evangelicalism in particular is kind of in denial about that. Right? Evangelicals have long just championed this this notion of, you know, Every individual has access to God's truth, the plain reading of the scriptures, and it's again just we're just plain old Bible believing Christians. That's all, uh, and so there, there's an, a, a kind of blindness to the way in which culture does shape theology, and uh, does shape the way they they read the scriptures.
0: Yeah, I think another thing I was struck by, on a similar vein, I guess, is that just some of the traditions, I guess that that. I grew up with as, as traditions or things that felt so, um, well, yes, of course. Like it's always been that way. Just haven't really been that way that long. And that's, I think your book kind of was shining a light on that. And some of them I kind of knew, but then I just have this list here of like Billy Graham, uh, registered Democrat until was it sixties or seventies somewhere in there.
1: Lifelong, no. He 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 stayed with it. He was a he. He never switched officially. Okay, I I can't say you know how he voted. Uh, I mean, his son will speak for him on that. But uh, no. uh, So yes, most southern white folks were Democrats up until the party realignment in the 60s, 70s, really not completed until the 80s, mm. if then. Uh, yeah. So so th- things haven't always been the way they are now.
0: Yeah. Then I think in that same section there, you talk about the Southern Baptist Convention. They had pressed for expanding even abortion access i mean yes it's still in a limited way but expanding what was available at the time back in 71 and then uh-huh. one nation under god being added to the pledge in 54 and then in god we trust to the money as well and then kind of this idea of the traditional family structure of the male breadwinner that's sort of coming around in the 20s but then not really peaking until like the 50s or 60s mm-hmm. but these are things i think when you especially when you talk about like make america great again there's always this like kind of feel of like, we need to get back to the the fifties or the forties or something like that. And uh, that, that was a relatively new, these are new phenomenons at that, at that time. I'm just curious. Exactly. There's a question here somewhere, but there's this, there's this feeling around evangelicalism or just Christianity sometimes in general in America of like kind of defending or conserving, holding, like, you know, holding that line. Um, First of all, are there any other things that maybe I didn't bring up there that uh, maybe that aren't as traditional as we as we thought. Any oh, other things yeah. that you discovered?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that that was really the point of my whole first chapter was just to to uh, destabilize kind of you know, the, the truths that we all think we know, uh, and so things like uh, you know Christian masculinity, uh, you know, what is Christian manhood like? I I wanted to just have a quick glimpse back to well, in the 19th century, it wasn't this rugged, tough guy Christianity. To be a Christian man was to be a gentleman, to to exhibit self restraint, mm-hmm. uh, and and that was you know a, a real tenet of Victorian uh, Christian manhood. Of course, you had the Southern variant, which was mm-hmm. a little different. That was a little bit more uh, kind of this this more dominant patriarchal uh, mode of of Christian ev- and evangelical masculinity. Um, but then you saw change over times that by the early 20th century in the north and the south, you have a kind of muscular Christianity. But there too, that wasn't just the province of conservative protestants not at all liberal protestants embraced this muscular christianity in world war 1 liberal protestants embraced militarism and christian nationalism whereas some conservative protestants resisted militarism and conservative uh or, and christian nationalism right so mm. all of this stuff uh it, it just just really destabilized and and to understand that things haven't always looked like they have now so that we can start asking okay when did this alignment really come into being this where we see conservative Protestants as Christian nationalists, um, pro-militarists, and gender traditionalists—you uh, know—in in their terminology, and, and that really is is in the 1940s. Uh, 50s, and really crystallizes as a kind of oppositional stance in the 1960s, when much of the rest of the country is starting to question all of these values. Militarism in the wake of Vietnam, you know, we have the civil rights moving, disrupting the status quo, particularly in the South. You have the feminist movement, and that's when conservative evangelicals really double down on these, you know, quote unquote, traditional values.
0: Wow. Yeah, it's so fascinating. Like, You'd be hard-pressed, I think, to convince someone today that these are relatively new ideas, tra- traditions, I yeah. guess.
1: Well, evangelicals have been really good at branding them, right? <laughs> right. Well, to think of yeah. the words, you know, traditional values. Uh, evangelicals in the early 20th century, you know, embraced this, this idea of, Old time religion—that's who they were. Now you know the modernists uh, uh, weren't weren't claiming to be old time religion. They were saying that Christianity has to adapt to modern times, but uh, that obscures the fact then that evangelicals, you know, quote unquote conservative evangelicals, even fundamentalists, were actually very innovative in their own you know adaptation of, of. Christianity to the modern era. Uh they were, you know, embracing modern advertising techniques. They were getting rid of old denominational structures hmm. and uh you know and and using kind of uh, mass media and so on uh and and all of these things are really disruptive uh and innovate, innovative and yet uh they are branded as Old-time religion. We are the traditional Christianity, right? We are, and everything else is and is a, a kind of distortion of true Christianity. And so, this is absolutely the story that evangelicals presented to the world, and they were very good at kind of capturing that um, that identity as as we are the traditional Christians. Uh, we have traditional gender roles. We, you know, we, we're kind of um, holding on to this truth. We are the faithful remnant.
0: Wow, the faithful remnant. Yeah, and then there's like this. I guess, persecution complex that comes along with it too. Like feeling like, cause I think some would even describe themselves as like being the minority almost like they're the, they're the ones that everyone's trying the angry at and trying to like kick out of positions. Of, but it, it's like, they're the most powerful block. Even you look at like 81% voting for everyone knows that stat, right? Of voting for Donald Trump. I mean, what other block of, of any group of people has voted in that, in that consistent, um, manner before, but then there's like this language around it from that group, I guess, that, you know, look at, look at us. Like we can't even, I don't, I don't know. I'm trying to, it's like prayer in schools and just these different things. Yeah, just it's just so crazy that it's like literally the opposite. But they'll talk as if there's this like minority status.
1: Yeah, and I think that part of that comes from this sense of displacement,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, because in the 1940s, that's when evangelicals came together. Uh, you know, these conservative Protestants, um, fundamentalists included, um, not the most extreme fundamentalists. They had their own organization, but you know, conservative Protestants came together and said, "Okay, we need to band together because um, they hadn't been able to seize control of most major denominations." In the 1920s, with the fundamentalist-modernist split, and so they they didn't disappear. They just went off and started their own churches and their own uh, Bible schools and their you know their their own kind of small networks. And then in the early 40s, they said, um, "Strengthen numbers. We really need to band together uh, because again, we 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 are the faithful remnant. We have this truth, and we really need to spread. You know, our Christianity across the nation, and um, and so this was a very strategic plan, and they, they decided to have, they needed magazines with, um, you know, tens of thousands of subscribers. They needed to take to the airwaves. They had all these great plans, and um, miraculously, almost, it worked. It worked phenomenally well. So in 15 years, they were really kind of at the center of things. They had Billy Graham with access to the White House, and this was the post-war era, and so their values of, you know, traditional gender roles were pretty much in keeping with, you know, this is baby boom era. Yeah. Uh, this was the Cold War consensus. So Cold War militarism, nothing that unique about that. And so they they definitely had moved from kind of the margins to close to the center of things um, by the 1950s and early 60s. And that's why the 60s was so disruptive when you have the civil rights movement and feminism and the anti-war movement. And then suddenly, you know, just when they had kind of made it, then the rest of the country, or at least a pretty good portion, says, "Nah, you know, yeah. <laughs> this isn't where we want to go." You you don't represent us, and so I think there's this this uh, lingering feeling of loss, of resentment, of entitlement that we ought to be at the center of things, um, and we are the you know the Christians at the center of Christian America, and we need to reclaim that, and we need to restore that.
0: Yeah, and it feels like one of those rallying topics i guess was abortion and and it's it still it yeah. still is but the pro-life movement and the moral majority like i i'm just i'm curious if you have any insight onto it like why abortion why did pro-life why did that become the the rallying cry i guess
1: yeah it didn't initially right it wasn't it wasn't at the origins of the religious right uh as you suggested in the early 70s the Sbc was you know uh, pro-choice uh there's a uh christianity today special issue in i think in 1968 the question of you know abortion right or wrong kind of and the, the answer was it's it's really complicated and and yes mm-hmm. it can be necessary in many situations and you know it's not ideal, but uh, it's, you know, it's a broken world and, uh, and yes, it, it, it is necessary. Uh, so that's late sixties and early seventies. And, um, and so in the, in the seventies, for much of the seventies, abortion was really the, the issue for Catholics. Catholics were staunchly anti-abortion, and evangelicals and Catholics weren't great friends at that time. We are Now we, we see this alliance between conservative evangelicals and conservative Catholics, and that was initially a political alliance, and that kind of grows out of this era. But it took a while for evangelicals to kind of get on board with abortion. Now, I, I want to um, add that there is a tradition within Protestantism both liberal and conservative Protestantism of um, kind of anti-abortion, uh, even anti-birth control. If you go to earlier in the century, so so it's not that it was completely absent, but it, there was not a a kind of unified view. It, there was a lot of of different views on, on abortion. It was a very difficult issue, um, and uh, the the issue that uh, many historians suggest really mobilized the religious right first was. Uh, segregationism. And when the federal government in the South uh, mandated desegregation of schools, that's when we see a lot of private Christian academies being established. And uh, when the government came after those, that really mobilized uh, uh, the, the religious right. Uh, so at Bob Jones University, uh, you know, Jerry Falwell Sr. was pro-segregationist uh, initially back in the day. And, uh, and so if we put race and anti-civil rights activism, you know, kind of before abortion, then it's in the late 1970s that abortion uh, is identified by strategists as this is really an issue that could unite uh, the religious right. And by that time, I think... Um, Uh, abortion came to be linked with feminism. And by the late 70s, evangelicals had, uh, conservative evangelicals had clearly identified uh, feminism as a threat to society, as a threat to morality. And so I think abortion became a political issue and um, probably the mobilizing political issue for many conservative Protestants, because of the way in which it was linked to feminism and to the purported rejection of God ordained traditional femininity, traditional um, women's roles.
0: I'm curious if you have, for, for someone who's still um, maybe abortion is the last issue they're holding on to, and the, the last thing that were, that keeps them uh, voting conservative. I just this is like an aside, but. What would you say to, to someone like that?
1: Well, I think that I mean, I, I respect the, uh, th- that it's it's a, a really important issue. And for people who believe that abortion is ending the life of a human being, um, you know, I respect that that is a, a, a prob- maybe the issue.
2: Sure.
1: Um, so so I wouldn't try to say that that doesn't matter. Um what I I would suggest is um, that many people claim that that's true, that that is the issue. Um, It's very important because it provides this kind of moral cover to the entire kind of uh, conservative agenda um, because of that one issue. But I do have a suspicion, and actually survey data backs me up pretty powerfully here, that if we could somehow wave a magic wand and remove abortion from the like from, from the political landscape, abortion doesn't exist. I think we would see very few voters uh, switch sides, mm. actually, uh, because uh, if you look at survey data, abortion is um, way down on the list for American voters generally and for evangelical voters. Like it comes down below the, you know, the economy, foreign policy, like all, I think it's like 12 or so on the list uh, of, of most important issues um, for voters. And um, and that always strikes me as, you know, that's not what I hear anecdotally at all. And at the same time, you know, if you do take uh, abortion off the table uh, and you start asking, well, what do you think about um, the military? What do you think about foreign policy? What do you think about immigration control? What do you think about tax policy? All of these things, there's like they're likely to still be aligned uh, with, uh, you know, conservative Republican agenda. And so I see abortion as one facet of uh, this larger, uh, you know, kind of set of issues, um, but it's it's not, maybe it's a linchpin, but I think it's just one facet. And if you remove that, I still think that the structure um, persists.
0: So essentially, if if Donald Trump was the exact same person that he is, and he was Pro-choice.
1: Uh, you know, I think that abortion was the signal issue to conservative evangelicals with Donald Trump um, that he was going to be one of them. Sure. Yeah. Uh, more likely, I think, is that at this point, if he would shift on that view, he would lose some some supporters, but I don't think he would he would use uh, lose most of his base. But uh, you know, that back in 2015 and early 2016, that was a key question. Uh, you know, who is this guy? Can we trust him? Um, he wasn't he just a Democrat, wasn't he just pro-choice? And so that was a, a signal that oh no, he'll he'll be one of us. Uh, but that wasn't you know every Republican candidate was uh, uh, you know anti-abortion. Uh, and so what was it about Trump that appealed to them? You know that that got him in the door, but I don't think that was the the secret to his success with evangelicals.
0: Okay so this term militant masculinity that that seems to be what you identify as kind of the biggest Issue that that's led evangelicalism to where it is, and it's sort of how we got here. Yeah. How do you, how do you define militant masculinity?
1: Yeah. So it's it's really just uh, looking. It, it starts with patriarchy, uh, and starts with a, a a pretty rigid patriarchy. So masculine authority, uh, but this isn't just kind of masculine authority in the church, uh, and it's not just masculine authority in the home. It does link to this this idea that I referred to earlier of, of the stark gender difference that men and women have just very, very distinct roles. You know, so somebody like James Dobson will frequently remind people that every cell of their bodies is unique, you know, is different. Uh, And so, so you have this stark gender binary. So for women, their job is to be submissive, to be, you know, sweet and feminine, vulnerable, in need of protection, and that's where men come in. So men's role is to be strong is to be aggressive when necessary so that they can, they can serve the, the, their, their role as, as protector and provider. Um, and provider becomes less and less important actually in in terms of their rhetoric, in terms of the identity of, of Christian masculinity, but this protector really becomes kind of the, the, the the key marker of masculinity and so men have to be strong they have to be rugged and there are so many forces that are going to work against that so feminism liberalism political correctness right all again the whole facet here uh yeah. the whole the whole constellation of issues right all of these are working against and so we need to we need to toughen up our boys um and we need to toughen up our rhetoric and we need to be ready to fight we need to fight Real wars. We need to fight the culture wars, and um, this ideal of of kind of what it it means to be a Christian man ends up shaping what it is to be a Christian, right? And so, Um, what what's really interesting is um, how you know passages of the scriptures how Christian virtues become gendered. So the fruit of the spirit—they're—they're right, they're feminine, self-restraint and you know, gentleness and kindness. And the Bible just says this is this is the you know fruit of the spirit of uh, of Christ, and and uh, it doesn't say that this is good for the ladies, uh, but you know, that's how it's interpreted. So th- that's fine, you know, for for you know the feminine sort, but you can't defend your church. You can't defend your family and your nation if if you're turning the other cheek. No, 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 no. Forget that. That's not what we're talking about here, right? So it ends up changing the faith itself. Jesus, Jesus gets transformed into this rugged warrior Christ who's going to slay his enemies, right? Instead of the Jesus of the gospels, the suffering servant. And so this, this idea of what it is to be a Christian man ends up uh, it is a very militant conception. And then it ends up really transforming the faith itself, or, uh, as I put it, corrupting the faith itself.
0: Yeah. Wow. Um, and it seems like kind of in the the gender race and class, like of those three things, you, you kind of land on gender being the biggest factor. Um, yeah. How, How did you come to see, I guess, gender as the, the biggest problem in evangelicalism and that, that kind of, led us here? I mean, I, I think it's pretty, it's pretty clear, but what, what from the, the, the data, what from like your, the history, like what, what led you to, to feel like that was the biggest thing, this militant masculinity?
1: Yeah. Gender is the thread that I pull through, but it is inseparable from race. Hmm. Uh, I mean, class too, but, but I, I really, really keep race at the forefront because this idea of, uh, evangelical masculinity is very much a white, uh, masculinity, a white patriarchy. Uh, And, uh, and that is evident in so many ways. So the heroes that they look to men like Teddy Roosevelt, well, what was Roosevelt known for, you know, subduing the savages out in the Mm -hmm. West, and then American empire and the Spanish American war. Um, The title of the book, Jesus and John Wayne, John Wayne becomes this kind of icon, not just of American manhood, but of this conservative Christian masculinity. Well, what's John Wayne known for in his films? You know, again, that, the cowboys subduing the the Indians and then uh, the Japanese in Sands of Iwo Jima and then, uh, you know, the North Vietnamese in uh, the Green Berets. And this is consistent, the white man, the heroic white man. And it is he who gets to use violence, God-given violence in order to preserve order in order to protect and and so um, over and over again this um, idealized masculinity it, it is a it is a white uh, masculinity. Uh, and and you can see that you know not just in its symbolism, but also in its politics. And so things like you know law and order politics—that's yeah, that's a very racialized concept in the 1960s and 1970s. Um, and and that is what evangelicals come to embrace. Again, it's it's white law enforcement, white law and order um, to subdue civil rights activists and uh, and people of color. And and you just see this pattern repeat over and over again. Um, and so. In, in the literature, um, men who are not white are often perceived as threats. So Islamic men, you know, very dangerous threats. Black men, perceived as threats. You can see this in statistics around Black Lives Matter and white law enforcement and things like that. Uh, you know, immigration also, um, you know, these are pre- um, non-white men are perceived as threats, whereas white men are perceived as as heroes. And it is their God-given duty to defend uh, their nation and their families. How do
0: you, we, you know, we talked earlier at the beginning of this interview and it's the beginning of Jesus and John Wayne. You talk about this two thirds of the white Protestants, um, you know, and then there's that long list that I said, I'm. I I think about the, the one third sometimes. Um, yeah. And I think about, you know, what is, because they're all, they'd all be defined as evangelical. And you talk about those four tenets of, you know, atonement Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, basically evangelizing and, and sharing and, and the other ones. Mm-hmm. But so they would largely be, they'd claim the same religious texts. They'd believe probably the same tenets. Um, I don't think either of them would probably have any major issues with the other's theology. They're going to believe the same same things for the most part. What do you feel like separates the the one-third from the, from the two-thirds? I, I'm just curious, like, how you think of that.
1: Yeah, so, you know, we have the evangelical left uh, that is, you know, presumably making it part of that 20% of white evangelicals who didn't vote for Donald Trump. Sure. And they've been hanging on kind of on the edges for a very long time. You know, Jim Wallace and Sojourners you know, going sure, back sure. Um, for decades. And uh, a more progressive evangelical um, faction has has persisted, a minority voice. Uh, and so, you know, uh, uh, David Swartz's book on the evangelical left is called Moral Minority. And, uh, and so, so they exist. But, but what we have now is uh, a, a small number of vocal uh, conservative Republicans who are uh, you know, standing against Trump, standing against the Trump administration. Uh, some of them are doing so boldly. Many of them are doing so very cautiously and sporadically. Uh, And and so it's a really interesting moment right now to watch the alliances shift potentially Uh, before the before 2016, the alliances were pretty clear. Uh, and so you had the conservative networks, uh, places like the Gospel Coalition, linked with the SBC, you know, linked with the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, and mm-hmm. you know, John Piper, part of this mix. And that—that's really that's that's the networks that that I'm looking at in Jesus and John Wayne, and 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 they're all you know, th- those are conservative white evangelicals. And then over on the other side, you've got maybe the University Press, uh, Christianity Today, somewhere kind of in the middle, and. Um, And, you know, the far left, you've got sojourners type thing. It'd be fun to just really map out evangelicalism Uh, and um, plot it out. Yeah. And but you kind of had liberals and conservatives uh, or progressives and conservatives and um, conservatives in particular, I think, would. Put up boundaries, and so many of the the progressives were were deemed um, kind of they were disfellowshipped, right? They were uh, mm-hmm. Lifeway Christian Books would stop selling their books. Uh, the conference circuits, right? No longer, you're not getting your invite. Uh, farewell, Rob Bell, kind of thing. Uh-huh. Yes. All right, so kick them out. Now, I think that uh, in the wake of 2016, and especially in the wake of 2020, and then January 6th of this year. I think that some of those um, boundaries are being redrawn, or at least reconsidered, because you have a group of conservatives who, you know, maybe even voted for Trump in 2016 and, and did so ambivalently. You know, many evangelicals were not all that ambivalent, but there were some who were, or some who just couldn't bring themselves to. And now they're looking around and saying, you know, what is the essence of evangelicalism. What, you know, I'm, I, I can't go along with this. And, and so now they're experiencing from Trump's base evangelicals, what progressive evangelicals had experienced, you know, in in generations earlier of being excluded, of being kind of defined out of the fold. And how exactly those lines will be redrawn is is an, an open question as far right. as I'm concerned. But it's really fascinating to watch this um, play out, um, and and I'm not sure where where we'll end up.
0: Yeah, it's just interesting to me the the churches that I grew up in, the churches that I was a part of and planting, and they would think they're part of the one third, but they they end up voting with the two thirds. So they're they're gonna get up and and it's almost frustrating to me. I listen to the sermons yes. and it's like. Uh, you know, hey, we need to, both on the right and on the left, like, hey, there's issues on both sides here. We need to be focused on Jesus. We need to be focused on the gospel. But I know if you were to pull the church more than at least the first time around, they were probably right at the 81%. They were probably, they were right, right there as far as the church is concerned. And then second time around, they're probably at least the majority would have voted for Trump. So it's like, what's the difference? Is there a difference like with these? And that's where I guess I go to John Piper. He's not... And you, you mentioned him in the book a couple of times, but he's not like that politically act, not like a Franklin Graham, maybe. Um, no. But I, certainly, you know, his church probably and the churches that kind of follow um, John Piper's ministry and end up aligning with with him. Um, so maybe it's more like a perception thing, not wanting to be included in, in that group, but you end up still... Being there, maybe there's no difference. I guess I don't know.
1: Yeah, I think I think there there is a a, you know we're not like those people, but I mean, in in voting is not a you know a a precise measure when you've got you know essentially two choices that that's maybe not the best measure. I'd I'd go I'd go into some of the other polling data then, right? You know, like this list that you 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 shared to begin with. You know, those sorts of questions of Hmm. um, you know what are we really looking at? What are the loyalties here? What are the you know so so it might and then and then also I'd I'd look at a divide between um, oftentimes between pastors and, and members of churches, huh. and so from the pulpit you might hear, "Yep, neither left nor right. God is not a Democrat or Republican," and yet the um, evangelical culture that people in the pews are consuming um, day in, day out. You know, Christian radio, um, they're reading World Magazine, um, listening to, you know, Christian contemporary music. Um, Now, what happens if a a favorite, you know, Christian contemporary recording artist comes out as anti-Trump? not good for sales. And so most of them stay very, very quiet mm. on that front. Right. And this is this is again kind of this consumer culture. Um what happens with the, when a Christian magazine comes out uh against Trump? You lose a ton of subscribers. And uh it it, it you know, it's been interesting to see that play out at Christianity today and then play out in a very different way at Christian Post. And mm. um and so so the truth is, pastors have far less authority uh, over their um, members of their churches uh, than they imagined they had, and that's something that um, has been fascinating. Pastors will say that you know, like, I, I, I can't lead these people because if I try to they're going to fire me right so who's actually shepherding the flock here and many pastors have come to realize that their own authority is uh is uh, really constrained in this moment and that members of their churches are following other leaders uh and 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 so there's there's a real crisis of authority I think right now in many in many churches and the pastors feel captive
0: well it's really hard i guess if you're <laughs> You know, you got an hour and 30 minutes or whatever, and then Fox News has... Exactly. every evening in your, in your home. And so you're hearing, and not even just Fox news, but you mentioned Christian radio and
1: Fox news, talk radio. Yep. And, uh, and, and this is, this is pervasive and it, it all is kind of mutually reinforcing, right? Because if you do try to disrupt this, if you do, then, then you're very quickly on the outs and and the pressures to conform, whether it's in your own local church or in your families, or certainly if, if um, money is on the line, if your livelihood is on the line as it is in many of these organizations and in institutions. You know, you will lose your job. You will lose your subscribers. You will lose your donors. I mean, talking parachurch organizations. So there are a lot of pressures to uh, stay quiet and and to conform.
0: Yeah. Okay. Before we, before we wrap up, I have a couple tweets. tweets. I, I like to dig into guest tweets and just see if you can add, <laughs> add some more, add some flair, add some more information um, to, to, to these. But um, one is just, uh, I guess I feel like the, the best we've heard after four years of what we experienced with Trump, which as you're describing in the book is a culmination of, it's kind of the, the this is this is what we get after all these decades of um, kind of leading here with the evangelical culture. But I feel like th- the best we've heard is kind of this, like it's not it's not like people apologizing for, for supporting him. It's kind of this like, I, well, I don't support his lifestyle and I don't like the way he talks. You know, I'm not like, and it's like you kind of have to, because you know, I guess, that you can't really just like stand up and defend the guy. You have to, talk about how you don't like him but um yeah you had this tweet you retweeted caitlin Beatty um on days like today i scanned my trump supporting friends' social media to see if there's any remorse uh, and voices of restraint i've been doing this for four years nothing yeah, and I think just a lot of our listeners would feel that same way. Just curious if you have any more thoughts or want to add to that.
1: Yeah, I mean that that's true. I um I I've been tracking this very closely for um, four plus years now, and you know after the election, I thought, okay, okay, so you've vanquished Hillary Clinton. She's she's gone. She's off. Yeah, you know, that was the big thing. You know, we, how could we possibly vote for her? Um, you know, holding our noses to vote for Trump. And I thought, OK, let's see this. Let's see this. Now your guys, you know, he is your guy now. He's in office. What are you going to do? How are you going to rein him in? How are you going to, you know, none of that. The only voices speaking out clearly uh, against Donald Trump after he was elected president uh from within the evangelical fold from what I could tell were those who were already speaking out against him before he was yeah. elected president and I watched right time and again and again and we had the Brett Kavanaugh, and we had Roy Moore, and we had you know so many, and and I mean it's the same voices. So Beth Moore out in front, and you know, but she had expressed reservations long before, and the supporters, uh, you know, just just crickets. And and this is not just on the national level, but social media is great for you know research purposes because you know, there's all these networks. I'm like, okay, let me go over to these folks and see what they're saying, and these folks over here, and yeah, yeah, as you said, the the uh, sentiment. Of Well, you know, it'd be good if he didn't tweet so much (laughs) like like that's the problem, the problem that he's on Twitter instead of, you know, everything that he is, you know, his his agenda, his 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 policies, his his moral center, like all of these things uh, that that seems somehow off limits. So, yes, that I I watch very closely. And my guess is I don't know if that tweet was on January 6th, but uh, probably uh, just after. Yeah.
0: Yep. January 6th. Yep you know, you do all this research, you, you discover, maybe you, maybe you already had this hunch that militant masculinity or that gender was going to be a, a big part of this. And just reading the book, I just, I, I got just really sad, I guess, reading a lot of pretty horrible quotes from different men. Yeah. Um, And there's a few women too, but just about, about women in the book. And then I guess yeah. this the the thought as I'm reading this is like, as a, as a woman, how, how did this feel, I guess, to do this research and yeah. just to read these things and, and discover that this is sort of what has been the problem and sort of is the problem yeah. now? How did that feel?
1: So I started this research more than 15 years ago, and then I ended mm-hmm. up setting it aside for a couple of reasons. One was it was just so depressing. It was so frustrating. It made me really angry and I I honestly thought is this where I want to spend the next few years <laughs> of my life in in this um really revolting space and being incredibly angry at fellow Christians. That that was a very uh, active question for me. And then there's also this nagging question of, you know, this is really extreme stuff that I'm seeing, very misogynistic and and you know, militaristic and um, is it is it fringe or is it mainstream? Right. Uh, you know, this was a question. And, and so I ended up, for a variety of reasons, setting the the research aside for a while until the fall of 2016. Um, but then when I picked it back up again, yes, it was heavy. It was heavy to research this. And huge shout out to my three research assistants, my Calvin students who who walked this journey with me and who read some really terrible things. And mm-hmm. we were kind of each other's support group through this, you know, I would check in with them regularly. I, I'd have to ask, are you okay reading something? of this, you know, on the abuse, on, uh, just the, this misogyny and, um, and racism. And, and so, so we helped each other through and, uh, it, I I was angry at times when I was researching, I was angry at times when I was writing that probably comes through in places, but it also felt cathartic to, because I'd been observing this for a long time. And um, it felt cathartic to be able to put it all down on paper and to be able to connect the dots. And then and I I didn't actually think that I could change minds by writing this book. Um, Maybe very early on, I thought I could. And then the more research I I did, the more I realized this is so deeply embedded. I'm not going to be able to disrupt this, but I want to testify. I I want to name this. I want to hold it up for all of us to see. And, and that's what I can do here. And so it actually felt really empowering to get to, to connect these dots, to get to um, speak back to um, uh, th- these power structures, to these abusers of power. And, and I, that's, I think, comes through in the tone of the book. Uh, there's been some discussion about the tone of this book. Um it's been described as urgent and sharp-elbowed, and I, I like that a lot. I think that's that's accurate. Yeah. It was really important to me to not show deference uh, because I saw time and again in evangelical communities how abusers were protected and how those in power were shown all sorts of deference and ended up getting away with all sorts of terrible things. Um, and and their followers would you know cover up and try to protect their witness, protect the witness of the church, protect the brand, and, um, and really terrible things happened. And I thought, I want no part in that. And so I decided I was not going to show deference to these folks. And, uh, and that, that really, the tone kind of came from that emotion, I think, um, just wanting to, to say things very plainly, and, um and, and hold it up for all to see. And a, a kind of, you know, accountability, I suppose.
0: Yeah. And th- thank you for doing that. Um, yeah. I, I, You know, you say that, I don't know if it's going to change minds or whatever, but we just having something like this where you can, I think for all of us who have felt this or have seen this, it's, it's so helpful to have this to be like, you just don't feel as crazy. You don't feel as alone to know that yes. someone is saying this. it's felt like this, but someone's saying this um, at the, at the end of the book, I'm just going to read a quote. You say, understanding the catalyzing role, of militant Christian masculinity has played over the past half century is uh, critical to understanding American evangelicalism today and the nation's fractured political landscape. Appreciating, appreciating how this ideology developed over time is also essential for those who wish to dismantle it. What was once done might also be undone. And uh, yeah, so if, if, if masculinity, this militant masculinity has been the problem, have you been able to get any words or, yeah, I guess for what, where can we can go from here, or what you see as some solutions to this?
1: yeah, you know, in the end, the book isn't isn't ultimately about masculinity as much as it's about power and the relationship between Christianity mm-hmm. and power. Masculinity is just one of the main ways in which power is is kind of wielded. Sure. Uh, and and so so ultimately, it comes to uh, it, I think the challenges for all of us to rethink. Um, this relationship of, of of Christianity and power. What is the gospel message? What is the the model of Christ? And, you know, a a, a Christ who divests himself of power um and and mm-hmm. offers himself for us. And we are called to follow that Christ, the suffering servant, to take up our crosses and and to me, that has always been the uh, what is most amazing about Christianity. That's really the core of my my belief as a Christian, and uh, from that place, it's hard for me to get to a a Christianity that grasps at power, a coercive Christianity, uh, a Christianity that wants, you know, I mean, it's biblical. And this is the, you know, what, what in the Old Testament, the Israelites kept doing over and over again, and then they wanted their king. And then, and then, you know, in in the time of Christ, they wanted the Messiah, that was the worldly leader, This is, this is, I'm a Calvinist, so I can just say this, this is just, you know, this is uh, original sin or this is human depravity or, or whatever. Like we're all prone to this. We are, we're all prone to grasping uh, at power and, and then justifying it. Um, but the thing about Christianity is that it it works against that. It ought to. And, and so I think that an answer uh, or, 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 or what we need to pursue to undo this is really, really be self-critical about, um, about power and about how, how we use power about who gets power and, um, and, and what the essence of Christianity really is. And I will say that, um, Although I didn't have much hope when I finished the book, uh, and I only gave that last sentence because my editor made me. Uh, he said I, it was too dark, and I needed to give my readers just a little something to hold on to. Mm. And so I finally gave him that sentence. He said, "Okay, good enough." But um, but it is it is true. I think it is that if you understand this history, um, like you said, you know, like I'm not the crazy one here. I've yeah. heard that from so many readers because it's just befuddling otherwise and if you can see aha this is how this came to be and it was not inevitable and choices were made along the way often by very powerful people and often to become even more powerful to enhance their power wow. and once yeah. you see that then um then it is liberating because you can you can choose not to embrace that and um, and so i've actually been a astonished by the reception of this book within conservative evangelical communities. I had no idea how many would um, would read it, first of all.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> Yeah, you know, with the title and subtitle, and and then how many would uh, receive it with such humility, with such openness, with such enthusiasm? And I mean, that's that's been a remarkable experience for me as a writer. And uh, again, I I kind of th- that's where I see the redrawing of some of these boundaries uh, around a different kind of Christianity. And I would love to see where that goes next.
0: Sure, sure. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, two two final questions. So historic, historically, we've seen evangelicals kind of double down. At, at times like this when they face the opposition I guess so and I, and I think maybe the question a lot of people are wondering too is and it's maybe impossible to know at this point but looking back do you think we'll see Trump sort of as it's just he's so extreme right so like does this yes. it feels like it could be the appropriate end to a movie but it also could be yeah. setting up a sequel like you know it's like hard to know right now like, yes, do, yes. do you have any sense on that based on just looking at history
1: I think I've answered that question to four different journalists just today. So so I have this answer all ready to go. And it's not it's not a great one. Who knows? <laughs> okay. uh, but um no, so so historically speaking, you're absolutely right that when evangelicals have found themselves uh, out of power, uh, when Republicans aren't in the White House, when they don't have that access to power, it tends to really strengthen and radicalize their movement. Uh so uh you know under uh Reagan's presidency a lot of the organizations in the religious right kind of you know fell apart <laughs> it, it was hard to drum up support when Reagan was in the White House mm-hmm. same thing with you know George W Bush and uh not so when it was Obama in the White House that's when you see this real strengthening and radicalization now Trump is different and this is where you know, so on the one hand we could expect that um that now, you know, this is just going to stoke the 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 fires of resentment and embattlement, and it's going to further radicalize. That is certainly in the realm of possibility, and there would be historical precedent for that. But but Trump is an aberration in that he he his genius was to hold power, to share power with evangelicals, right? To raise them up and to favor them, and. Simultaneously to stoke and fuel this resentment and sense of a among mm-hmm. evangelicals all at the same time. And um, we hadn't seen that before. And so so he was really remarkable in that. And so that's why I don't know what's going to happen next, because um, he he's still around. But he's not powerful anymore. Right. You know, he's just on the golf cart course, as far as I know. He doesn't even have a Twitter platform anymore. And so, uh, what does that do to the movement that really did coalesce around him? Um, and if, if they are, you know, the, I I can't say that we're not going to see radicalization. I'm not sure that it's going to happen around Trump at this point. And so if it's going to be diffuse, Mm -hmm. if there's going to be infighting, it might not be able to kind of mobilize in a united way as we saw under, you know, the eight years of the Obama administration, um, as we saw during the Clinton administration back in the nineties, you know, this kind of strengthening of, uh, conservative religious organizations, um, so I'll, that's a long way of saying, I have no idea what's going to happen next, but I keep watching.
0: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It does feel, it does feel different under Trump, I guess, than if you say like a, a Bush or a Reagan or something like that, for sure. Yeah. Okay. Last question. I mean, our listeners, almost radical title of the show, our listeners don't really need to be convinced, I guess, like they're the ones that are just nodding their heads the whole time. Yeah. They would feel peace from reading your book, I think, because it's like, yes, this is what I've, this is what I've been feeling. This is what I've been thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and this gives words to it. But they do have to have dinner with friends and family that yeah. uh, would still are still in that evangelical circle. Yeah, and often feels like there's this wall between us and them. And I guess the question is, do you feel like there are any cracks or holes in the wall of evangelicalism that those of us sort of on the outside can use maybe to mm-hmm. help those still in evangelicalism to maybe start seeing? Some of this stuff that, that you're that you're sharing?
1: Uh, there, there are no shortcuts here uh, that I've discovered. Uh, there, there are no kind of easy fixes. Um, the most important thing is to stay in relationship, I think, uh, to um, to both stay in relationship and also speak truth. Now, it doesn't have to be Facebook screeds. It doesn't have to be, you know, like sitting down for an hour heart to heart before you have dinner or, you know, ruining a family birthday party or anything like that. But I think just, you know, making sure that those in your circles know what you think, what you believe, and and what distresses you, sure. uh, because often those things even go unspoken, and so so these differences have been papered over for a very long time. And I think it's important that people know that you know, those who are close to them have have different, um, you know, deeply d- different views on some of these really important issues. Uh, I had the luxury of 300 pages and a whole lot of footnotes to make my case,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so and and what I found is that that has worked really well, uh, right? To, to again, to show how we got to this point. And that is really hard to do in a 15-minute conversation. It really, really is. Because again, we're coming to these issues you know we can open the bible in front of us or we can we can talk about this current event or even this historical event in a snapshot and we're going to just be coming at it from such different places really almost different realities um and, and that's even before the whole you know uh, fake news phenomenon and in these echo chambers and, and it is really really difficult um, and so, so I don't have a quick fix. I, I just feel really grateful that I was able to write this book.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and I, I, I have, you know, Twitter is, is awesome for, um, kind of getting to experience the life of the book, uh, uh, after it's been released and to see people say, you know, I shared this with my dad. I shared this with my parents, you know, they're reading it right now and they're, and they're, you know, apologizing or they're coming to terms uh-huh. with this. Um, uh, yeah, there's this, this gorgeous, uh, a tweet about, um, you know, I share this with my dad and you know, he resisted it all the way through until the last chapter. And then, um, you know, he, um, he apologized, he apologized for how he raised wow. us. He apologized for being a part, for being complicit in this. And I've heard so many stories, um, like that of people wow. realizing that, you know, the, the most frequent response I get, I, I get letters every day from readers the most frequent one is this is the story of my life and um and what's been really remarkable to me is how many people who participated in this are not trying to distance themselves from it not saying but i had some good reasons for doing this not at all again these are the people who are writing to me but uh, but they're saying you know I was complicit in this wow. and I need to come to terms with this and I need to change. And it's, it's really been um, absolutely remarkable to, to hear so many stories like that. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm just grateful.
2: Wow.
0: Well, Dr. Jamie, I really appreciate this. And thank you so much for this. I had no idea it was, I mean, I knew it, take, it took you a long time. I had no idea that you had spent 15, 16 years um, on this, had to put it aside for a while then, and then come back to it and, um, but thank you for this work. I think it's it's going to live on for a long time as uh, more people discover it and hopefully more people have those same experiences that uh, that some of those people writing you have had. Um, but yeah, thank you for this.
1: Oh, thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation.
0: All right, friends. Well, thanks for spending this time with me. As always, we'd love to hear from you, hear your feedback on this show. You can do that um, by emailing contact at almostheretical.com or getting in touch with us at Almost Heretical on all the social platforms. And Big thanks to all the patrons that support this show and take part in our monthly conference calls and listen to our second podcast called Utterly Heretical, which is honestly my favorite show that we do. So I encourage you all to check that out at patreon.com slash almost heretical. All right, catch you next time.